Support for WIPR's podcasts comes from Brightview Senior Living. Since 1999, Brightview has proudly served Greater Baltimore with vibrant, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and enhanced care. Find a community near you at brightviewseniorliving.com. Twisted Sister was singing about the glory of rock and roll and not taking any crap from anybody who puts you down for what you look like or what you believe in. Hello. We understand you're going to Greece. Just so you know, there's rioting, there's civil unrest, there are kidnappings and carjackings and murders. Have a nice trip. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Soup Storytelling Series podcast. I'm Laura Wexler. And I'm Jessica Hinken. And this week, we are doing our third in a series that we're calling Return to the Stoop, in which we feature a memorable stoop story, or in this case, two memorable stoop stories, and explore various fascinating questions with the storyteller. Before we get started, we want to thank our sponsor, the Park School, which is a pre-K through grade 12 non-sectarian awesome school located right outside Baltimore City. Okay, so our storyteller for today is none other than Terry Sapp. By day, he's an emergency coordinator for the Health and Human Services for Baltimore County, which is essentially a public health emergency coordinator position. So he's got his hands full right now, but uh, by night and on weekends and any other minute he can, he is, well, he's a super fan, he's a roadie, and he is a rock and roller straight from the heart. And so we're going to listen right now to two stories that Terry Sapp has shared at the Stoop. The first one was in 2010, and the second one was in 2013. So we'll start with the story from 2010. This is a tale from Terry Sapp. There's an ancient expression, a paraphrase, that says, happiness is not the destination but the, the journey itself. And that's entirely true for me in the most literal sense, because for me, my happy place can be anywhere in the United States, because I am Armadillo, the official, unofficial, twisted sister road reporter and concert reviewer. <laughs> totally true. Since 2003, I have been on the road. I have reviewed concerts for Twisted Sister in two countries, 12 states, uh, no, wait, two countries, 12 or 15 states, 17 cities. You can tell. I don't know how many shows. It's that many. And what happens is when you start reviewing this many shows, the band actually started to notice me coming to these shows. Now, it may be that I'm in the same place at the same time, you know, wearing the same clothing every time. It might be that I'm the only heavy metal fan feverishly scribbing notes in a, in a notepad, you know, notepad, you know, while they're up, they're playing. But they started to notice this. And I don't know, I think they were a little afraid. They thought I was like a, a heavy metal stalker, you know. Uh, I, I don't know exactly, you know, the fanatic does start with fan. But they talked to me after one of these shows and they said, you know, we, we really need to know something. And it may be what some of you want to know, which is why? <laughs> Why us? Why Twisted Sister? Why do I go to such tremendous lengths, thousands of miles, to see this band? And this is what I told them. Uh, as a young child, I had a, uh, some very traumatic things happen to me. And as a result, I was not like the other kids. I was just very different. 
Well, as you can imagine, I was bullied. I was bullied very severely, both physically and emotionally. And by the time I hit age 14, I was suicidal as a result of the bullying. My salvation, my saving grace, was the music of Twisted Sister. Because Twisted Sister wasn't like all the other 80s heavy metal hair bands. They didn't look like anybody else. They didn't sound like anybody else. They didn't act like anybody else. And when all those other 80s heavy metal bands were singing about sex and drugs and party all night, Twisted Sister was singing about the glory of rock and roll. They were singing about self-expression, being yourself, being proud of who you were, and not taking any crap from anybody who put you down for what you looked like or what you believed in. And that, to me, that spoke to my soul. So I came into school, and I was the ultimate headbanger. I had the big hair out to here. Don't, don't go there. That, that horse left the barn a long time ago. But I did. I had the big heavy metal hair. I had the denim and the leather and the chains and the big black boots. And you've got to remember, this was the early 80s. Nobody looked like this. The preppy look was very big. And if you went to my high school, everybody looked like they stepped out of the yacht club. I think a few of them actually did. And in I walk looking at the heavy metal hair and the, and the whole nine yards. So the bullying got even worse. But the difference was the music of Twisted Sister gave me the self-confidence to believe in myself when no one else did. And it gave me the strength to stand up to my bullies and say, I'm not going to take it anymore. I am my me. I'm proud of who I am. I'm different. And that's okay. And I felt good about that. My parents, however... Not so much. <laughs> they weren't too thrilled with my musical selections and were definitely not happy with what I looked like. So when Twisted Sister finally toured my town, they put their foot down. They said, absolutely not. You're not going. So I wrote to the band. And the band wrote back. Uh, in fairness, it was the drummer. You know. <laughs> okay, you know, the drummers don't get a lot of fan mail. They have a little more free time than some of the other band members. But the drummer wrote back. He said, hey, I'm sorry you don't have any friends. I'm sorry you can't come to the show. But I'll tell you what. I'm going to send you some backstage passes, some VIP tickets. Go out, bribe some people to be your friend for the night, and come to the show. So I did exactly that. I asked everybody I knew. I even asked people I did not know, 7-Eleven clerk, anybody <laughs> who I thought might drive me to the concert, because I was only 15. And then I remembered my 10th grade homeroom school teacher had a teenage son. I asked him, jackpot. His son is a huge Twisted Sister fan. I talk him into being my chaperone, except he says to me, all right, I'll take you, but there's one thing. I want another adult there. So my mother was a huge Elvis fan when she was a teenager. And I remembered her saying that Elvis was very controversial for the time that he was, you know, her parents didn't approve of Elvis. So I worked that angle and I worked it. And finally, <laughs> the next thing I know, my mother, my 10th grade teacher, and a van full of teenage boys were off to the Twisted Sister show. And for I, the kids in the audience, I'll just tell you, I got a chance to say something to my mother that every teenager has dreamed of saying, which was, you're not going with me looking like that, are you? 
I mean, you gotta remember, she was like a, a Jewish manicured mother. You didn't see too many of those at 80s heavy metal concerts. And she goes with me, a real trooper. Those 90 minutes, there were no bullies. There were no worries in the world. It was 90 minutes of bliss. I look over, there is my mom. She's got her fist in the air. She's throwing the horns. We're rocking out. It was a great time. We go backstage. There's my mom talking to J.J. French, lead guitarist. And she says, Terry, Terry, come here. Terry, this is Mr. French. He's in the band. <laughs> like, I couldn't get more embarrassed. You know, I'm like, Mom, I, I know who that is. And he says, Kid, you got a cool mom. And I said, Hey, you know, I, you're right. I think I do. And that changed how I viewed my mom forever. Okay, my mom just got blessed by Twisted Sister. <laughs> but, you know, I thought, Boy, you know, that is a pretty cool thing for a mom to do. And then she says to me, well, you know, this was the first time that I was an outsider. Everybody was looking at me and staring at me and judging me for the way I looked, and I didn't like that. She says, I think I understand now what you feel when you go to school every day. And I think I understand how you feel when you go out there and everybody is staring at you. And she said, you know, that was the happiest I have ever seen you in your entire life, even when you were a little kid. So it changed the relationship I had with my parents from that point forward because they never again gave me a hard time about my hair or my appearance or the music that I had playing. Changed us forever as a family. And so when Twisted Sister broke up in 87, I was distraught and I had to wait 16 more years for them to get back together in 2003 for a reunion tour. So I made it my business that I would get to every single show that I could get to so that I could bring some of that joy, that 90 minutes of absolute bliss with Twisted Sister fans all over the world because they weren't able to get to the show that night. So if you ask me where my happy place is, it could be New York City, it could be Sayreville, New Jersey, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, could be Orlando or Tucson, Arizona, Las Vegas, Nevada, even Fort Wayne, Indiana. If you ask me next week, my happy place is going to be Oklahoma City on July 23rd, and it's going to be Wichita, Kansas on July 24th. But it's always one place, and that is front row at Twisted Sister. So this is the Armadillo, your official, unofficial Twisted Sister Road Reporter, trotting off. Okay, and before we get to the next story from Terry Sapp, we want to take a minute to thank our sponsors, Golden West, which is a restaurant in Hamden on the Avenue serving vegan and Southwestern food with a great uh, carryout window and just all sorts of fun events when events are allowed again. And we want to thank Baltimore Magazine, you can find them on the newsstand and also at baltimoremagazine.com. All right, so this next story was told by Terry Sapp three years after his first one. It's in 2013. We'll catch up with him in his continuing saga with Twisted Sister. So the irony here, I'm the last person that should be talking to you about international travel or really any travel in general because 
I was petrified of travel. Uh, I didn't have a car until I was 27. And when I got a car, I wouldn't drive more than 10 miles from home by myself because I was absolutely afraid of getting lost. And for any of you who can relate to being afraid of travel, it's really all about a fear of the unknown. Now, we know that love conquers fear, and I had one love, and that love was 80s heavy metal sensation, Twisted Sister. (laughs) I was a fan since I was 13. They broke my heart when they broke up in 1987. I waited 16 years. They reunited. I got to go see them. They're playing the exotic location, New Jersey. I white-knuckle it. I get in the car. I go there. If you've ever been to New Jersey, it's culture shock. (laughs) Everything is by uh, your parkway exit, right, your turnpike exit in relation to the Dunkin' Donuts. Left turns are illegal, and they speak a different language. Fortunately for me, I'm fluent in F-bomb. I was bit by the travel bug. I travel now all over the country. I'm going by trains and planes and rental cars. I'm going everywhere. Well, what happened was they became bigger and bigger and bigger. The domestic shows kind of stopped. They're now playing all these giant festivals all over the world internationally. Nothing terrified me more than international travel. But I thought, I got to go. I bite the bullet. I'm going to travel internationally buy a bunch of international tickets. Now, if you've ever traveled internationally, you might have done what all neurotic, terrified international travelers do, and that's register with the embassy to let them know you're coming. (laughs) And when you do that, you get these nice emails from the Department of State periodically that say, hello, we understand you're going to Greece. Just so you know, There's rioting, there's civil unrest, there are kidnappings and carjackings and murders. Have a nice trip. (laughs) So I'm getting all these emails, and I'm getting even more nervous about the international travel thing, but I'm like, I'm going to blend right in. I'm going to eat the food. I'm going to learn the language, and I hail my taxi cab, and I'm really proud of myself. I get in the cab, and I go, Yasu, Karimarasas, Club Principales Palakalo. That is all the Greek I know. It was, hi, good morning, the principal club, please. And I'm really proud of myself until the cab driver turns around. Eh? Where is the club principal? Well, there's a lie that people who travel internationally will tell you to get you to travel internationally. They say, oh, don't worry, wherever you go, they speak English. (laughs) That's only true in one country. England. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, I'm in trouble. I run inside. I get the concierge. I bring her out. She translates. She tells him where the principal club is. Off we go. Cab driver turns around. He apparently knows one English word, and he looks at me sideways and goes, "Mm, American? And I start to panic, and I'm thinking back to that email, and I went, no, 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 Canadian. (laughs) I'm, I'm from Canada. And he's like, ah. And I went, uh, I start to sing the Canadian national anthem. Oh, Canada. And then I realized I don't actually know the Canadian national anthem. I don't even know if it's in English or it's in French. And I'm thinking, oh, crap, I should have watched more hockey. So I just, I make something up. I'm making stuff. I'm, I'm going, oh, Canada. 
Je voudrais mon vie, which if you know, it translates badly to, I would like my life. And off we go. That's a good enough for him. We're speeding down the highway. I'm thinking, this is great. I'm going to the Twisted Sister show. All of a sudden, cab driver swerves over three lanes, takes an exit. Now we're off the highway, and we're on a dirt road. And I'm like, this does not look like a rock show. This is not going to be good. And I'm going, oh, I don't like this. And I'm looking, and he's kind of looking at me in the rearview mirror, and I'm thinking, this is it. I'm getting mugged. I'm getting mugged in rural Greece. So I'm like, ah, starting to get a little nervous, and I'm getting antsy. And he's looking at me, and I'm looking at him, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is definitely not good. We're now on a dirt road. There's five-foot weeds on both sides of the cab. And I'm thinking, I'm not getting mugged. I'm getting kidnapped. That's what's happening here. And I'm getting antsy. I'm like, all right, I need a plan. I need a plan. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Tuck and roll. That's what I'm going to do. Tuck and roll. I'm going to throw myself out of the cab. I'm going to tuck into a ball. I'm going to roll on the ground. And I'm going to make a beeline for the highway and flag somebody down for safety, right? Well, now he's really watching me in the rearview mirror. And then we're on this dirt road, and the cab's going up and down and up and down. And I'm looking, but we go past a scrapyard, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm not going to get kidnapped. I'm going to get murdered. <laughs> and I'm thinking, my poor mother. She's not going to have any closure. They're never going to find my body out here. It's these weeds. My bones are going to rot near a scrapyard in these tall weeds. And then I'm like, oh, and a fate worse than death. I'm going to miss the Twisted Sister show. Why couldn't he murder me on my way back from the show? Then I could die happy. So now I'm like, okay, I need a tuck and roll, tuck and roll. I'm looking in the mirror. He's looking back at me. And I'm thinking, you son of a bitch, you're not going to get this tourist. Oh, no, I got you. And now he's going faster. He's going 65 miles per hour on the dirt road. The cab is my head's hitting the top of the cab. I'm holding on with one hand like this on the ceiling, and I'm holding the door with the other. Right? I got the seatbelt unbuckled. I got the lock undone. Okay, we're watching each other. I'm like, this is it. This is it. As soon as, we, as soon as he slows down, I'm out of this cab. He swings around the corner. I'm thinking, all right, it's go time. He slams on the brakes. I slam into the seat in front of me. I swing open the door of the cab. I throw myself out of the cab. I now stumble out on the dirt road. I look up, and before me stands the Club Principalis. <laughs> and I just kind of turn around. I'm covered in sweat. I've left a puddle of sweat in the cab. I probably peed my pants, but I didn't notice. And I just kind of walk over. I pay the cab guy 30 euros. And he just kind of pats me on the shoulder. Pats me on the shoulder as if to say, you stupid Canadian, I only mug the American tourists. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, Terry. So you've had a chance to go back and listen to these stories. So one is 10 years old, one is seven years old. What is it like to listen to them? Well, you know, it's really bittersweet because uh, the front row of a Twisted Sister show is no longer my happy place. <laughs> oh. um, something very uh, extraordinary kind of happened to me after 2013, and that was 
Um, I was actually brought into the road crew as a roadie for Twisted Sister. I was officially a tour and band assistant and a production assistant. Uh, I did a, a internship, essentially an unpaid internship with them from about 2012 to 2014. And then in 2014, it was made official. So I became a part of the road crew. And when I was offered that shot, uh, my tour manager, Danny Stanton, he kind of hung the laminate in front of my eyes and said, okay, listen, you know, here's the deal. We're going we're gonna to offer you this chance, but you have to pick. You can be a fan or you can be a part of the crew, but you can't be both. And once you pick, you choose wisely because there is no going back and there will be huge sacrifices. So I, I didn't even think about it. I didn't even ask what the consequences were. I said, I, I want to be a part of the crew. He said, okay, you can be a fan or you can be a friend. I said, I'll be a friend. I took the laminate, I put it on and I, I didn't look back. And he was right. My entire life changed. My entire view of Twisted Sister changed and my view of the whole industry changed. And it, it actually it kind of ruined live music oh, no. for me. Oh, it ruined no. live music for me forever. <laughs> I can never go to a concert the same way again. I can't look at a show the same way again. I don't go to concerts pretty much anymore unless I'm working them. Um, and it, I barely saw or heard a Twisted Sister song in its entirety for those last few years that I worked for them because I was working, I was running around backstage, I was doing a lot of things and I missed most of the concerts. So I had to make a huge sacrifice in that regard. And the bigger piece of this, and this is the part of the sacrifice he was talking about that I, I couldn't have even understood then. But you know, when you're a super fan, as I was, I, I can honestly say I no longer am, you put your rock bands on a pedestal and you worship yeah. them as gods yeah. and now when you're an employee and you were working for them and you see them at their most vulnerable at their most intimate moments you see them as men you see them as mortals so in a sense it's as if your gods are now mortal men and it was kind of like losing your religion yeah. um, and so all of that magic that i used to experience in the front row that magic was now gone because I knew how the magician did his tricks. I knew where the, 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 the rabbit was hidden and the hidden boxes and all of that. And so now I was a part of the machine that made the magic that brought joy to other people. So that became my new passion. It developed in me as well a love for working crew. It's like a drug unlike any other drug. I will be chasing that high probably for the rest of my life. Um, but now uh, I'm working professionally um, as a stage tech, as a crew guy. Um, I've worked for a number of other artists and I'm, I'm working for a regional act here in the Maryland area that I've worked with now for two years. And I do that for about 120 shows a year. And then if I can pick up a small tour for a month or two, with a, a bigger act on the road, I try to do that as well. So I had to make a sacrifice and lose one happy place, but I now have a new, uh, much more different happy place, but in the same genre. Uh, I still stay in touch with Twisted Sister. I, I talk to the bassist 
pretty regularly. Um, talk to the guitarist a couple times a year and uh, stay in touch with my road crew brothers. So it's still a huge love, but it's a very different type of love. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. I have so many questions, but I think, so you, you don't stay in touch. Is it the same drummer now as the guy who wrote you back when you wrote your original letter? Probably oh, not. so uh, that's a sad story too. Um, AJ Perro, who um, wrote me back all those years, became my pen pal. We became very, very close on the road, both once I was a blogger, but also um, as a member of his crew. I, I, my job was to take care of that band, and I, I always took good care of AJ. I, I loved him dearly. He passed away uh, very suddenly in 2015. Uh, it was actually uh, March 20th, 2015. He was um, playing, ironically, here in Baltimore. He was playing Arbutus at the Fishhead Cantina with Adrenaline Mob. We had talked that day. I was going to go down and see him. I was going to take him out for crab cakes. And um, he had a cold. I had a cold. I said, ah, you know what? I'm going to see you in Vegas in a couple months at a Twisted show. I'll, I'll take you to dinner then. Um, he passed away in his sleep uh, on the tour bus that night. He had a massive heart attack. Uh, so unfortunately, we, we lost AJ. And it really changed the entire atmosphere from that point forward. It was really never the same after that. Backstage and, and on, the, on the transports, we always had a lot of fun. There was a lot of laughter. 2015 was the year that we, we finished that tour kind of in memorial of him. And it was a, I would say somber. We still had fun, but it was very different. You know, our, our real big fun maker, AJ, um, he, he was gone. 2016 was the last the last year, the last tour. Um, I can't say the name of it because I, I know we're on the radio and it has a, an F-bomb in it. It was the 40 and, F, 40 and F it tour, um, as in 40 years together and we're done. And uh, it, it was really hard. I think the last year and a half that was hard for all of us, um, but doing it without AJ was, um, it was very different and you could feel the vibe. You know, for me, it was a year trying to find some closure, closure for his death uh, because it was so sudden and really closure that, you know, Twisted Sister was about to end. And I really didn't know what was going to happen to me after that uh, because this whole part of my identity was wrapped up in them first as yeah. a fan, then as a blogger, and then last as a member of the road crew. So I kind of had to find myself that, that year following Twisted Sister. And um, that's when I decided to really go full throttle and work towards, um, you know, becoming a, a backline tech, becoming a technician. Because I, I didn't really say this before, but to become a part of the road crew, and I don't know if you have questions about how that happened, but that really doesn't happen. You know, fans don't just become fans. And then yeah. they go, oh, I think I'm going to follow this band. And yeah. the band says, hey, we like you. Here, join our road crew. There are roadies, there are technicians, audio engineers, production assistants, backline technicians, all these very skilled, usually musicians, who work their entire careers and never make it to that echelon of working for a band like Twisted Sister, where we were not just playing these giant festivals all over the world, we were the headliner. So you know, I didn't quite appreciate it at that moment, but there were folks that worked their whole lives who were 
very talented, very skilled, very experienced, and never make it to that level. So for me to go from a guy that had no, really no musical background, no musical talent, didn't know a guitar from a drum, didn't know any of the language or the skills or anything to go into working on a road crew was pretty extraordinary. Uh, and the way I got in as a production assistant was kind of what I used my skills as a blogger. And I combined some of those skills as my day job, you know, doing a lot of uh, emergency logistics. I kind of watched. I watched everything they did. I watched how they did everything. And I decided that I, I had to make a niche. The crew was full. They had no shortage of crew members. And I, but I needed to make a niche. So I decided my niche was anytime they needed something, I was going to be the guy that either had it or would get it for them. So <laughs> I kept a running list of everything they ever asked for, for like the, that one internship year, that 2000, actually it was the 2012 year was the first year I started doing it. So if they asked for an aspirin, an antacid, a bottle of water, a Sharpie, gaff tape, um, a safety pin, a milkshake, it didn't matter, a coffee. I kept copious notes on everything. I knew how every single band member and every single crew guy, I knew how they took their coffee. I knew what they were allergic to, what their food preferences were. Um, I, knew, I knew what size clothing some of them wore. I knew what style underwear what some of them wore because that way, if anybody forgot anything on the road, they then knew, well, you know, we'll, we'll call, call Sap, you know, call Armadillo. He'll have it in his bag. And if so you basically it, like stalked your way up to the top. I stalked my <laughs> way in and I stalked my way up to the top. So oh my I God. Not, it was, it became the, the running joke. You know how they used to say there's an app for that? <laughs> there's a sap for that. So, oh, my God. oh, we need, hey, I need an antacid and it's 3 a.m., well, I don't have to call the tour manager. I'm, I'm going to call Sap and he'll have it in his bag and he'll bring it down to me. I, and I traveled with a band bag and in that bag was, was it was like Inspector Gadget. It, it, literally everything they could possibly want or need, I had in that bag. And if they didn't, if I didn't have it, I would go out and get it. And I used so to So you were like a bag, you were the bag man. I was the bag man. So, I mean, it was, if I don't, if I don't, if you need it, I have it. If yeah. I don't have it, I'm going to get it. If I can't get it, you probably don't need it. So yeah. I would research every single city and town and that we would go to, because these were mostly international places. We traveled to 20 different countries. And I basically found out ahead of time where our hotel was. And so I mapped out where were the restaurants, where were the pharmacies, where were the supermarkets, where was everything we could possibly need so that I would text the entire band and say, hey, I'm going out, who needs what? And I would get a little shopping list. I need a razor, I need socks, I need antacids, I need cold medicine, I'm not feeling well, I need, you know, I need some tea. And I'd go, I'd come back and I'd go to each room and deliver everything that they needed. And this was band or crew. And it, it just became a thing that I was doing. And then I kind of expanded like, okay, once they're on stage, what can I do to help the crew, because I knew there was nothing I could do for the band. I had no skills. Um, I was scared to death to even touch the instruments. I was afraid there'd be some weird mojo and something would happen and they'd blame me. So 
I was like, well, you know what? I can tape down cables. If you show me how to do it, that I can do. I can, I can bring your waters out. I can bring the Gatorade. I can uh, bring you towels. And so little by little, I kind of started my way in with doing all these little things. And that meant that the crew could just focus on those critical issues. So by the end, I was added on officially in 2014 when they, they added me and I started getting paid. By the end of it, um, I was running from the minute we got to the festival grounds at 6 a.m. until we left at 2 a.m. You know, I never got a, a moment to stop. I was constantly running. And it was you know, handling transportation logistics, the post-show catering, making sure it got into the vans. I'd pack their bags. I'd get their bags into the vans. I mean, there were a lot of like these little things that nobody thinks about when they're out watching the show that there is some poor bastard backstage doing this stuff. And that was me. So I could hear my favorite songs in the background going, oh man, I love that song. But I didn't have time to stop because nope, I got to pack up their bags. I got to get their bags in the transport. I got to make sure that the vans are loaded. I got to check in with our, you know, our, our handler, who is also the assistant tour manager to say, hey, you know, what do you need? I'm going to have them here by this time. Who do you want in which van? How do you want to load it? So I rarely got to see the shows. That's the sad irony. The, well, the 2016, and, I barely got to see a damn show. And I'm wondering, like, what you said about Twisted Sister saved your life. You know, you say that in that first story. And they were heroes and they were gods and they were up on a pedestal and you had to give that up in order to become part of their family, essentially. And I'm wondering if looking back, you know, you said that they, you saw them in their vulnerable moments and all that. Do you feel like they lost their God status for you or the magic like went away all at once? Or was it kind of gradual that the distance between you and them sort of closed until you were, you know, they were no longer gods, you know, and heroes. Did that, did that happen all at once or did it happen? Was there a that, single incident that happened that you were like, oh, these people are not who I thought they were? Well, I mean, the good news is I, I love them and I love them as people. Yeah. So, so, you know, my gods are now, you know, five, you know, five men, one man that I love forever, you know, rest in peace, AJ and, and the other four, uh, you know, I love them. I love okay. them dearly. That's awesome. And I love them faults and all. But I yeah. will tell you, there were times where I hated them. Uh, <laughs> there, there were moments where I'm like, oh, my God, you know, uh, you know I, I can't even say the things I wanted to say. But, you know, and it's just natural. It's being a part of, of the crew. It's very emotional. You are a family. And that means you, you have sometimes the dysfunction of families. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, you know, I won't say it happened all at once, but there was one particular moment that was so incredibly sobering. Um, it was kind of like somebody just dumped a bucket of cold water on my head. I had never been to a crew meeting before. And from what I understand now, I actually talked about this with um, JJ French, the guitarist, uh, a couple of weeks ago. They didn't really regularly have crew meetings. I mean, you had a gig, everybody showed up, they did their thing. And if there was an issue with one particular guy, they'd pull him out and talk to him you know, but they didn't really have a full crew and band meeting. I didn't realize that. We had a couple of shows that did not go well. 
everything just went wrong. Some of those things were our fault, the crew's fault, and some of those things really were out of our control, but it was a bad, bad gig. Uh, it was in uh, Barcelona, Spain. And then the next night was uh, Sweden. And uh, things did, went better in Sweden, but still we had some issues and the band was not happy. So they called a, they called a crew meeting. Now I should point out at this point, we had almost been awake for two full days. Oh we had God. probably been up for about 48 hours. We had done two solid festivals. So we weren't just awake for 48 hours. We had been working and I had been working solid. I did about 12 miles at the, Bar at the Barcelona gig where um, literally my, my feet got bloodied inside my boots from all the running. So it was two really brutal, hot, heat-wise days. And so they have us in the crew meeting and they don't wait. It wasn't like, okay, everybody go home, shower, go to your rooms, get some rest, come back and have a crew meeting. It was the twisted sister way. It was, okay, you've been up for 48 hours, you've been busting your asses working and you're sweaty and dirty and smelly. We're now gonna have a crew meeting. And we piled into a single hotel room and uh, some of the band members came in with, with our tour management, closed the door and we got blasted. I mean, they, they tore us up. They were pretty much, you know, JJ said right then and there, I'm inclined to fire all of you right now. We're just so unhappy. And, you know, for a guy that had now just gotten on the road crew, thought, here it is, I'm living my dream. This is the greatest moment of my life to, to kind of get cold water splashed in your face that says, um, you could lose this job at any second. And what you thought was great and okay was not okay. You know, um, I had a lot to learn about stage management and, and the whole industry. So that was a very, very difficult, kind of sobering moment, I think for all of us, but for me in particular. And it made me go, okay, you know what? This is not a game. This is not a hobby. Um, I could be replaced at any moment and I need to step up my game. I need to be a professional. I need to learn a lot so that I can be as professional as possible. And I have to make sure that I am always pulling my weight and that I'm looking out for my fellow crew guys as well. So it was a, it was a, a very life-changing moment for me. Wow. Oh. This is an epic story. I mean, the, just sort of the life arc of, you know, being a kid who discovered this heavy metal band who, you know, found solace and, identity and hope through this band became a super fan became a blogger became you know became the road crew and then part of the family and that you still you know the magic is gone but the love is there and the and the way that I mean you can only have magic from afar like you said so it's like you have intimacy not magic you have family not fandom you know and I'm so glad that it worked out for you because I think it usually does not it usually does not like usually if you get to know your heroes up close there's a lot of loss and disappointment you know and I love that you found this connection and this relationship with them as people 
that is substantive now and that you don't really need that magic anymore, you know? Yeah, it was definitely a sacrifice, you know, and um, I was willing to make that sacrifice and I kind of, I really didn't know what to expect, you know, but once I kind of got into it, I, I realized that I could never go back. I couldn't go back to being a fan and I didn't realize it would ruin concerts for me, but I mean, now, you know, I sit at a concert and all I want to do is watch the crew, look at the back yeah. line. Oh, geez, they missed that cue. Oh, you know, the lighting guy's asleep, whatever. So it, 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 the joy of concerts are kind of gone. But what's funny is um, there were other fans along the way that, and I, I built an enormous family of, of Twisted Sister fans that knew me as the blogger, kind of followed my trek into the road crew. So I met fans all over the world that I still stay in touch with that are also now a part of, I consider a part of my Twisted family. But what happened was we had one fan, and I won't, I won't say his name in case he's ever listening, but um, he was in another country. He's an international fan and he wrote JJ French. And I forget if he asked him a question or he, he asked a very pointed question. And JJ being very, very frank and forthright gave him a very honest answer. And it was a, a you know, a commentary about Twisted Sister and the, and you know, that it's a business. And I think, again, super fans have this image of, of their idols. So yeah. to this fan, he thought, well, Twisted Sister does it for the great love of rock and roll and what the, what the message they're bringing to all their fans and they know they're saving lives. And that's, yeah, that's true to a certain degree, but let's be honest, it's a business and they're in this business because yes, they love rock and roll, but they're in this business to make money. It's not a charity. And this fan was absolutely crushed. He was crushed. He was devastated. He wrote me and said, I don't know what to do. Look at this response I got from JJ. How do I, do I respond? What do I do? I, my whole concept of this band is, is destroyed and I don't know if I can ever enjoy the music again. And I felt bad for him and I, I understood where he was coming from. And I said, okay, listen, this is how you're going to have to cope with this. You know, you have been afforded a small, tiny step inside one of the little inner circles. So now that you have been given this knowledge and you've been given this inner circle, it's kind of like finding out that Santa Claus is not real. Um, you cannot destroy the image for the children. You know, you have to keep the mythology going. And so you've been trusted with this, put it in your vault, keep it inside and understand that now you can kind of be a part of that um, magic that will now reach other people. But for you, unfortunately, you now know that Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny aren't real, you know, in that regard. So you're going to have to keep that magic alive for someone else, for all the other kids. And that, that helped him. And he did go to other shows after that and enjoyed it. But, you know, there is a, you know, it's why you do have to be careful meeting your heroes. Yeah. You, know, you have to realize that um, they are human and you may not like the answers you receive. You may not like to see a certain side of them. I was really fortunate. I lucked out with Twisted Sister because they, they really are great guys. Um, they're really good people. And, you know, there was never anything that I saw or heard that, that changed that, that feeling towards them. You know, those times that I was like, oh, I hate you. They, they were situational, you know, it was yeah, like, yeah. oh my God, I now have to run all the way back to the dressing room because, you know, somebody forgot 
something and now I have to run all the way back, you know, and oh, I can't believe I have to do this. And then I have to remind myself in those moments, hey, there are millions of people that would kill to be doing what you're doing right now. So, you know, suck it up, you know, remember where you are, remember how long it took you to get here and, and, and go forth. Well, thank you so much for, yeah. for joining us to, to talk about these great stories and, and the great story that is your life as it's unfolding now. It's just so terrific. Before we get out of here, we want to thank the Wine Source, which is located on Elm Avenue in Hamden. They are a terrific supporter of the soup and they have great wine and beer and snacks and appetizers and they yeah, can so take care of you. Yeah, Maureen Harvey, our intrepid, amazing producer who takes care of us at every turn. And we want there's to there's a Maureen for that. Yeah, there's a Maureen. Well, see you, you have your own armadillo. <laughs> God, no, I want an armadillo. Everybody needs that. Oh my God, my God mouth bless is watering. I've been saying that for years. This. So all oh, the fans that need to hire me. <laughs> oh my goodness. So thank you again, Terry, and we will see you back here we're actually changing things up a little bit at the soup storytelling series podcast we're going to go to bi-weekly so we'll be releasing an episode every two weeks for the next piece of time so we will see you again or you will hear us again in two weeks thanks a lot i've got road stories for days (laughs) (laughs) bye-bye everybody bye-bye